Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Uh, light comes through and it, and it reflects in, in different ways. And if, if you twist it, light comes through, but it, the light reflecting is, is different and it's different colors and it's a different pattern. And you twist it again and it's like you can see different angles of this light that's reflecting through. The Bible is like that. When you hold it up once, you know, you can see what it says, but then you look at it from a different angle and you see something new. And you look at it from a different angle and you see something new. And you behold Jesus and his word over and over and over again. Another person says that the Bible is like a mosaic, right? It's just like this beautiful mosaic. And when you look at the intricate little pieces of glass or the colors, the little, little uh, texture there, it's beautiful. And then when you back up, you start to see a more whole picture. And then you back up, you see even a, a bigger picture. And eventually you see this beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. So that's our, our goal for today. Um, are we good on slides, by the way, or is it not working? Oh, we are good? Okay, cool. So, Matthew 1, 1, uh, we're going to be flipping the pages a few times here. All of these will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, I'll be, you know, going through some, some passages here. Just by way of review of who is Jesus, Matthew 1, 1 starts this way. The book of Genesis, or the account of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The New Testament says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you remember, uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says that phrase, the book of Genesis. And what happened in the book of Genesis? Well, what happened in the book of Genesis is God brought order out of chaos. God brought light into darkness. God brought life where there was no life. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Jesus is bringing order out of the chaos of the darkness of our hearts. He's bringing light and he's shining his light into our lives. And he is bringing life where there was no life. This is why Paul says when you're actually in Christ, you're a completely new person. Done. You're, you're, you died actually and now you're made alive with Christ. That is what he's doing. Jesus is the son of, Dave, son of David the rightful heir to the throne. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the one in and through whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a powerful way to start a gospel message. Next, Matthew 1, 21. Matthew 1, 21 says this, you, um, she'll give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus means savior, deliverer. Have you ever felt like a slave to your sin? Have you ever felt that you can't shake off that nagging sin in your life? Just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. That addiction, that thought pattern. You ever felt hopeless before? Do you ever feel this divide between knowing that the, that the promises of Jesus are yes and amen but you're not living what you think you should be living? The promise of the Christian life is everything to the full, and your life is like, not that. You ever feel that way? Ever feel like salvation from sin is just a future thing that happens, and it doesn't actually transform you right now? 
You ever feel that anxiety rise up again and you have no idea why? That hopelessness? Like you're trying with all your might to remove yourself from something and you can't. What's this say? Jesus is calling you to himself. Jesus is the one that will save you. Break those shackles. Break the strongholds that are in your heart, in your mind, in your body. Redeem that and save you and deliver you from that. The word save is the same word as deliver or rescue. We need rescuing. Every day we need rescuing. Jesus is here to save us from that. He's here to break off our change. He's not asking you to deliver yourself, to save yourself, to redeem yourself, to rescue yourself. He is the one that will do that. Right here, right now, every single person in this room, Jesus is calling you to himself, to a life of freedom, to a life of joy, to a life of peace. A couple verses later, Matthew 1.23 says this, you are to name him, oh, he has two names, nice. You are to name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. So who is Jesus? He's uh, the one bringing about a new creation in our lives. He's the one who's gonna save his people from their sin and he is God with us. Do you ever feel like God is distant? You ever feel like God is far away? Like God can't hear you? Or worse, he's not listening? You ever feel like God can't relate to your pain because he's God and he doesn't know what, it's, what my life is like, my situation is like? I don't want to bother him. What does this say? Jesus is with you right here, right now. In those moments when you are in a dark, dark spot, your mind is spiraling, your heart is anxious, nothing seems to be going right, what, who is Jesus, according to Matthew, right there with you? In the brokenness, in the heartache. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, and what is he doing? He's not saying, hey, get out of this situation, try harder. He's just sitting there with you. He can handle your pain. He can handle your anger. He can handle your, handle your doubts. He can handle your frustration. This truth is not some trite thing that we just say at Christmas every year. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us. This is reality. This is the only thing that's real. God is here right now with us. And the, mo- the reality is that most of the time we're not actually aware of his presence, but it's not that he's absent. It's just that our eyes are not focusing on who Jesus is. Jesus is here to redeem what is broken, to find what is lost, and to heal what is sick. And that's you, and that's me. We're not even out of chapter one yet. That's who Jesus is. Now we're at a chapter one. Matthew chapter three, verse two, and chapter four, verse 17 says this. First, this is words from John the baptizer. And second, this is words from Jesus. They both have the same sermon. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So first of all, who is Jesus, according to Matthew? He's bringing about a new creation in your hearts, in your lives. He is the one that will save you from your sins, deliver you, redeem you from those chains. He is the one that is God with us here right here, right now. And what's his message? His message is, turn around. 
because the kingdom of heaven is here. Question I have for you is, do you want to live in that kingdom right now? Not when you die. Right now, do you want to live in the kingdom of heaven? Do you want the promises of God to be yes and amen in your life? What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is this. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a life penetrated throughout by love, where everything you do is just love. It's a faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good. It's a hopefulness that defies discouraged, discouraging circumstances. It's a power. The kingdom of heaven is a power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is when your knee-jerk reaction is one of love, one of patience, one of kindness. The kingdom of heaven is when you turn the other cheek, somebody wrongs you, and you forgive again and again and again. Kingdom of heaven is when your life is characterized by selflessness, love, and joy. The kingdom of heaven is when you have kindness and encouragement just coming from your mouth, not words that kill and destroy and stab. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. And guess what? Jesus is saying that this isn't something that you just get in the future. This is life right here, right now. And who is the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Who represents perfectly the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. So now when we are in him, what do we represent? Jesus the kingdom of heaven. This is our life. The question is not if, the question is how. We've always said this and we will continue to say this, but I'm going to say it one more time. Repent is not a one-time decision. I'm going to say that again. Repenting is not a one-time thing. It is a daily thing. We sing these hymns, Lord, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. Repentance is daily turning around saying, I'm done. I've, I've already, the dead part, the flesh has been killed. The sin has been killed. Now I'm going to live into my identity. I'm going to live into who I know I am. I'm redeemed. I'm set free. God is with me. He's given me his presence in the kingdom of heaven right now. You don't just say, I believe one time, and then you're set until you die. You don't just say, I repented one time, and you're set. It's a, it's a, it's a continual, continual action. We say it every single day. So, so who is Jesus so far, according to Matthew? Well, he, he's, he's uh, bringing about a new creation in your hearts and your minds. He's here to save you from your sins, redeem you, set you free. He's with us, and he's saying, turn around, turn around, because what you long for is here in me. And then finally, oh, nope, not finally, two more finally to go. Four, uh, one through 11, the next passage we're going to stop at is this, 4, 1 through 11. Jesus passes the test. We're not going to read it all, but this is the wilderness temptation. So who is Jesus according to Matthew? He is the one who passes the test. Now, this is significant. This is significant because Jesus' passing of the test, now his success in that, now becomes whose success? You and I who are in him. There's a lengthy quote I'm going to read uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's about testing and temptation and the people who, um, I think a lot of times we think that Jesus can't relate to us because he was perfect. So when I'm tested or tempted with sin, it's like, oh, well, you know, Jesus was God. So like he didn't, he can't relate because he wasn't tempted. And his whole point in this quote I'm about to read is saying that the person who actually knows the full strength of temptation is not the one who gives in the first. It's the one who gives who doesn't give in and who keeps fighting temptation. He says this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. 
a silly idea that is current, it is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation actually know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it, and this is key. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. In other words, Jesus passes the test, which means that he put up with temptation beyond anything you would you and I comprehend, and now his passing of the test becomes whose? His disciples. We are not condemned. Jesus does not say, try harder. He says, your victory is now, or my victory, rather, is now your victory. So that's who Jesus is, according to Matthew. And then finally, last stop. This is a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter four, verses 23 and 24. Who is Jesus according to the gospel of Matthew? This is probably my favorite picture of who Jesus is. He began to go all over Galilee. He was doing three things. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, repent, because the kingdom of heaven had come near. And he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. Next slide. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. Let's pause before we read that last sentence. Picture this crowd. In your mind's eye, picture this crowd, afflicted, suffering from various diseases and intense pains, demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics. You are the Son of God about to bring the kingdom of heaven onto earth. Who are the first people you go see? I gotta go to the big donors, I gotta go to the um, um, religious elite, I gotta go to the governing powers in here, I gotta make sure that like, they know my plan, they know how the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth, they know what I'm about, that I'm in charge, they're not in charge, and what does he do? Just walking around a lake, Sea of Galilee, and the broken are coming to him. And those who are at their wit's end are coming to him, and those who are at rock bottom are coming to him. And he shoes them away, because he has a plan. He's got a mission. No, what does he do? And he healed them. Jesus' heart for you is compassion, is mercy. You ever been afflicted? You ever felt oppressed? You ever feel broken? Jesus is not walking past you because he's got more important things to do. Jesus is looking at you right now saying, come to me. I can heal you. I can heal your pain. I can save you from your sins. I am here with you. This is the Jesus that we serve. He's teaching us, he's preaching to us the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing you. That portrait, that, that's the portrait that we have of Jesus so far. He's bringing about a new creation in your lives. 
He's the rightful heir to the throne. He's gonna save us from our sins. He's gonna be with us in our brokenness. He's the one that proclaims repent, turn around, because I'm here, the kingdom of heaven has come near. He looked evil in the eye and defeated it, and now he is healing and loving compassionately and selflessly all of, us, all, all of those who know they are poor in spirit. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the Jesus we've been studying. All, that's the portrait of Jesus we have in Matthew so far. Then he, right after this, he sees the crowds, he goes up on a mountain, and he delivers his sermon. And he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn, knowing that life is not as it should be. Blessed are the humble who have nothing, who know they are nothing. Blessed are those who hunger, who yearn for God's righteousness. They look at the evil in this world and they're not okay with it. Blessed are the merciful, those who put down the sword and sit with another person, put themselves in their shoes. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who will one thing and one thing only, the reign and the rule of God to be on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. Put the sword down interrelationally Blessed are those who are persecuted because of doing the right thing. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed when they insult you, they persecute you, they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Do you feel blessed when people talk bad about you behind your back? Depends on what for, right? If it's for nothing, then it's for nothing. But if it's for Jesus... If it's because you've actually done the right thing in a situation at work or with your coworkers or with your classmates, when you've done the right thing and, and, and you're, you're talked bad about, Jesus is saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's it right there. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you, which leads us to our text for today. It's a long introduction. After Jesus gives the beatitude and then says you are blessed, um, which by way of reminder, Jesus is talking to a specific group of people. The Sermon on the Mount is to the disciples and it is from Jesus. I'm also probably gonna put this up on the screen every week because this is key. It's to the disciples. Who is it not to? Not disciples. Which means that if you are a disciple of Jesus today, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to you. And who is it from? It's from Jesus. It's not from this taskmaster. It's not from this lo- a person who's lording you know, stuff over you. It is from somebody who loves you deeply, who sits with you in the pain, who wants you to be saved and delivered from your sin. So verse 13 says this. You are the salt of the earth. Okay, let's stop right here. You are the salt of the earth. Every, um, every command in the New Testament is a plural subject, which by that I mean when it says you in verse 13, you know, I can read that and I'm like, oh, he's talking to me. He's talking to me, singular, one person. We in English, we don't have a way, we, well, I guess if you're from the South, you say y'all, but I don't, I don't say y'all. I'm, yeah, anyway, so some people say y'all, like you and y'all, but in, in here we just have you, but who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the, the disciples, and this word in Greek is plural, which means who is the salt of the earth? The disciples of Jesus. It's corporate. It's the church. It's the local body. 
Sure, it can be me individually, but I, if I'm a, you're not a Christian and not a part of a church. That's just an oxymoron. So you, plural, everybody, the church of Jesus, the people of God, those who, fought, who have repented and believed because the kingdom of God has come near, you, all of you together, are the salt of the earth. The second word is are. You are. What does Jesus not say? You ought to be the salt of the earth. You should try to be the salt of the earth. You know, now that you're this, you really should, you know, work hard to be the salt of the earth. What is it? It's an identity. This is who you are, like it or not. You are the salt of the earth. How empowering is that? If you know your identity before, you live from that identity. You don't live for that identity. You all are identity statement, the, as in exclusively. There's not multiple salts of the earth. There's one salt of the earth. It's the salt of the earth. Now, salt of the earth, what does salt of the earth mean? There's a lot of opinions about what does it mean. Uh, I think the longest list I found from one commentator, there was 11 lists, or 11 things in a list of what does salt mean. And then he concluded, and he was like, well, since it can mean any of those things, nobody really knows what it means. And that's I don't agree with that, by the way. I think we can know what it means. But primarily, the top three things that salt does in the ancient world and a little bit today is it purifies, it adds taste, and it's a preservative. Maybe you've heard of the preservative one, too. But the way it's used most in the scriptures is primarily for a purifying effect. So yes, it, it adds taste and it brings out flavors and, and yes, it can be a preservative because they didn't have refrigeration back then and so it was a preservative, but primarily in the scriptures, salt always meant purifying. It always functioned as something that purifies what it's trying to clean. I'll give you an example, a modern day example. The other day I was cleaning out a cast iron skillet and I had to Google it because I'd never done it before and I, I kind of figured you couldn't throw it in the dishwasher, so I'm glad I Googled it. And uh, I Googled it, and it said, hey, put a, bu- a bunch of these articles in YouTube posts. They're like, hey, put a bunch of salt in it, and then take a rag, and then, like, rub the salt in, and then the rust in the cast iron skillet, you know, will slowly uh, go away. And I did this before I was planning on using this as an illustration, so I didn't do this just for the sake of a sermon illustration, but here we are. And what I found was a couple minutes in, after my elbow and shoulder started hurting from rubbing this, the salt became brown and the cast iron skillet lost its rust. I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. So you dump out the salt in the trash can and then pour more salt in there and do it again, and then the exact same thing happened. The salt absorbed the um, rust, the dirt, the grime, and then the cast iron skillet was clean. In Exodus, this is used, uh, this idea is used in Exodus and Isaiah and in Jeremiah, where salt is something that purifies. So what is Jesus saying here? You, as disciples, are, period. You are, this is who you are, the purifying agents of the world. You ever been in a relationship where your your righteousness is seen, your good works are seen, and and then the person kind of like starts to notice, and then they don't maybe maybe this has happened to me a few times where I'm friends with somebody who doesn't know the Lord, and they're swearing a bunch, swearing a bunch, swearing a bunch, and they're like, yeah, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor, and then they're like, oh, and then they're like, oh, sorry, okay, and then they stop swearing, and it's a really trite, small example, but what is it? That's that's it's purifying, right? That's being the, the salt in, in a very simple, and you can just keep going. How, how, how can you 
be God's purifying agent in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You purify. Let's keep going. What does he say? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? There's, this is an oxymoron, right? Salt actually can't lose its taste. Uh, also, taste, it, it really means if the salt loses its effect. That's what it, what it means. If the salt loses its effect, how can it be made salty again? This is an oxymoron because salt actually never loses its effect. So it's like you can't not be the salt of the earth. It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I learned this recently. Maybe if you're from Iowa and you're in the farm, there's a lot of farming, um, there's a lot of farming in Iowa. And uh, salt can actually become a herb, like a herbicide if you throw it out on grass or on a crop and if you put it there, if you throw it there, it will actually kill the ground underneath. So it'll, it'll destroy it. Some of you guys are not, okay. No, some of you guys are nodding, which I'm glad you're nodding. Um, so it'll, it'll actually have a opposite effect. So in the ancient world, what they didn't do is they didn't throw it out in their backyard or throw it out on the crops. They actually would put it on a path because on a path where people walked, you didn't want grass to grow, you don't want weeds to grow, you don't want anything to grow. So what would happen? You would throw the salt out on the path and then what would happen? People would walk over it with their feet. So Jesus is saying, if you are not actually living up to the identity that you are called to, you actually have a reverse effect where you don't purify things. You can actually, be, be, you can actually kill things. And so you're, you're useless. And so it's, it's, an, it, it, it's not a thing. To, to, to be a disciple of Jesus and not to be the salt of the earth is, is, a non, a, is a non-example of what it means to be a disciple according to Jesus. You are the salt of the earth but if the salt should lose its, t- if it should become not affected, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So the next question is, how as Jesus' disciples, do we, are we the salt of the earth? Not do we become the salt of the earth. How are we the salt of the earth? Well, there's two things, and this is for salt and for light, and it's gonna be on the screen as well. How are you the salt of the earth? Living holy lives, talking about what we love. Some people, how do I, how do I, Become a, how do I grow in my discipleship to Jesus? How do I become the salt of the earth? How do I be what these beatitudes are talking about? Living holy lives, talking about what we love. When you look at the portrait of Jesus from Matthew 1 through 4 so far, it, it should be compelling. It should lead you to love Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, that, mean that means your heart loves Jesus. Jesus. So then what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about what you love. Everybody talks about what they love. Do you love Jesus? Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I love Jesus. Do you talk about Jesus? How do you become the salt of the earth? Living holy lives, talking about what we love. And keep this on the screen. And we're going to go to the next one, though. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. Okay, you, plural, everybody, the church, the disciples of Jesus, not just me as an individual, yes, me as an individual, but primarily us as a body, our identity, this is who you are, the light of the world. I love this. I love this. Why? Who else is the light of the world in the Bible? John says, Jesus is the light of the world. Well, Jesus says, I am the light of the world in the gospel according to John. That's a very exclusive statement. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am this, I am this, I am the light of the world. Now Jesus is telling his disciples, you guys are the light of the world. 
Which means what? If Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world, and now he's saying, you guys are the light of the world, what does that mean? That means that we reflect Jesus. Not just reflect, we actually shine into the darkness exactly like Jesus did. See, when we're in Christ, his identity becomes our identity. So if he's the light of the world, guess what we are? We are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. I I kind of, when I first read that, I kind of wanted to say like, duh. Like, he doesn't say it should not be hidden or it must not be hidden. He says it can't be hidden. It's impossible. Little context here in this ancient world, what cities did um, was before electricity, they would have torches maybe six to ten feet apart from each other, and they would kind of like line the streets, they would line the outer gates, they would be on the, the, um, the, the walls and everything. So if you were far enough away, like really far away, and you looked at the city, it would actually look like one, one bright light. But as you get closer, you kind of see like, oh, there's, oh, there's torches. Oh, okay. It's like when you look at a city from, a, from, a, uh, from an airplane. You see these skyscrapers, and it just looks like a beam of light, but you get closer, and you're like, oh, it's multiple windows with the lights on. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Well, Why? so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father, your Father in heaven. Light in the Bible always refers to God's revelation, God's witness, God's presence. It's who God is. The light shines in the darkness. Think of Genesis 1. Think of John 1. There's darkness in our hearts, in our worlds. And when you've experienced the light of God, you actually become that light to others so that when people see you, when they see you living your holy life, when they see you talking about what you love, they see who? Jesus. This is not something to try to live up to. This is who we are as disciples. So that they may see your good works. I like that phrase uh, at the, in the middle of, of verse 16. Um, you know, we... we you might say, well, I'm not saved by my good works. And that is 100% true. Your good works do not save. You are not saved from good works, but you are saved for good works. That's what Ephesians says. That's what this says. Your good works do not save you, but when you are saved, you're doing good works. Now, what are these good works? Well, these good works are, it's the Sermon on the Mount, not being angry in your heart, not lusting, in your heart, not giving up on people when things get hard. When somebody wrongs you, you actually turn the other cheek. You don't repay evil for evil, but you actually repay evil with good. You don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but actually only what is helpful for building others up. You don't let your tongue go off. You don't say something and then not deliver. You only let your yes be yes and your no be no. The people who hate you in life, who are rude to you, who have it out for against you, you actually love them and you pray for them. You give to the poor not to be seen by others, but to be seen by your Father in heaven. 
You pray not to be seen by others, but because you can't live a single day without communing with the Father in heaven who is for you and who loves you. You fast not to be seen by others, but to claim and show devotion for God to teach your body how to break our hearts for what breaks his heart. You forgive others when they don't deserve it. You don't serve God and money. You don't worry about tomorrow because you see that God loves even the birds and the lilies of the field, so how much more does he love you? You don't judge other people's motives. Well, I know they are gonna do this because I know within, you don't do that. Rather, you ask for God, you seek God, you knock at the door, and the loving God of all creation will answer. In sum, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what, that's what living a holy life is. In sum from that, loving God and loving others. The entire law is summed up in this. So how are you the salt? How are you the light? Living holy lives and talking about what we love. I have one more quote I want to read. It says this, do you want to light up the world? Do we actually believe what is promised in the gospel? Do we believe it? Understand it, acknowledge it, live it out. In the radically new kind of life Jesus came to bring, or are we content with a gospel of uplift, a spiritual narcotic that eases our pains but never leads to a cure? If we're honest, most of us prefer to hear religious words that make us feel good and allow us to go on living like everyone else. We avoid the truth that confronts and convicts. We would rather have our consciences smoothed than seared. We prefer an attractive spirituality, not one that gets under our skin. We want a religion that adapts to the culture and eases us into heaven, not one that threatens to turn our lives and the world upside down. That's not light. That's not salt. It takes resurrection power to forgive others. It's unnatural. It takes resurrection power to love your enemies. You can't do it if you're not a disciple. It takes resurrection power to live selflessly, to become salt, to become life, to live holy lives and talk about what we love. Otherwise, it's not possible. The Sermon on the Mount describes the life of a disciple. A a good test is as you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, as you're hearing these words I'm saying, and as you read the Sermon on the Mount, Ask yourself, is that me? If, you, if, if there's nothing about you that you see in the Sermon on the Mount, I would strongly encourage us to look to Jesus and repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you see areas in the Sermon on the Mount where you're like, I, I, I feel like the Lord has brought me a long way in this. I feel like I can get to a point where this is true in my life. Praise the Lord and repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So I want to leave you with a question and then we're going to observe communion together. And the question is this, what do you slash we, I'm sorry, where? Where do you slash we need to live into this identity? Remember, this is identity language. You are this. You are the salt. You are the light. Are you at fully? No. Do you fail? Do you sin? Yes, but that's not a reason to just throw this all out and be like, oh, well, I'm done with this and I'm just gonna rely on Jesus' grace. No, like where do we need to live into this? 
Jesus has saved us, not from our good works, but for our good works, where we can be a purifying agent. We can be the revelation of God into this dark world. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna actually give us just maybe 60 seconds of silence. And I want you to pray this question. And the Holy Spirit, we trust the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring things to mind where we need to repent of. Maybe we need to call somebody and ask for forgiveness. Maybe we need to ask for forgiveness from the person that we're sitting next to you. So I'm gonna give us about 60 seconds of silence and then what I'm gonna do after that is I'm gonna lead us in communion. Where do you and we need to live into this identity? Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Inkney Gospel. Thank you.